Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that pushes the parameters in discussing motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have news stories, including Toyota's success is clearly with hybrids. We have an interview with Rob Fraser, who talks about the new Land Rover Defender, no more the dinosaur from a previous era. We have some comments and issues from our listeners, and then an interview with Alan Zervis, who gives his feelings on Toyota's new Yaris, quality at a price. And finally, in our quirky news segment, Brian Smith and I talk about tactical urbanism. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. And of course, there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's start the program. Let's get rolling with the news. With the release of their new Yaris, which now has a hybrid option, Toyota presented some figures on just how important hybrids are in today's market. So far this year, the overall market is down 19%, but Toyota is only down 7.7%, the smallest decline of any in the top 10 car companies. 24% of their new vehicles so far in 2020 are hybrids. That's nearly double the number they sold in the same period last year. In the month of July 2020, hybrids were 41% of sales. Their Camry has the highest percentage of hybrids at 65% and not far behind the RAV4 with 61% and the Corolla with 52%. That nearly a quarter of their sales are hybrids is all the more revealing when they do not provide hybrids in some of their biggest selling models, such as the Hilux Ute. Toyota has released the full information on their new Hilux utility range, and it is quite a wide range. There are 35 variants of the vehicle, 11 are two-wheel drive and 24 are four-wheel drive models. Toyota is emphasising that this Hilux has more input from Australia than any before it. The local design team helped style the exterior, while its local engineers helped develop upgrades to power, torque, suspension and steering. Australia is well suited to this as our roads cover more than 80% of the different road environments around the world for these vehicles. Work was done to improve the engine performance in situations of travelling long distance, including acceleration, overtaking and towing. The suspension was also upgraded to not only cope with maximum loads, but also to provide a more comfortable ride when the vehicle is not carrying a load, a common situation. August sees the anniversary of the announcement of the first Mini on the 26th of August 1959. The Mini showcased developing technologies such as front-wheel drive, allowing a compact vehicle, but it also changed the vision of a small car from being an embarrassment to being a trendy thing. Spike Milligan drove one, as did Lord Snowden with Princess Margaret. Motoring journalist and former marketing executive Paul Morell felt it defined a new social perspective. It was such a classless car, and if you can use the word classless in the right sense, in that it transcended classes. Some very, very famous people drove them who could have been driving almost any car they wanted. It was probably the first time in many ways the car didn't define its owner by its branding. 
got to a stage it almost created its own industry of people modifying them. But really, most of those people who drove them drove them exactly as they came out of the factory. So it was. It was a car that appealed across borders. The time is right for an electric Rolls-Royce. This is not a quote from the Rolls-Royce company, but from David Lorenz, founder of Lunez, a company that fits electric motors to restored classic cars. They say they are answering the need to marry beautiful classic design with usability, reliability and sustainability. They are now offering a Rolls-Royce Phantom 5 with electric power. Phantom 5s were built between 1959 to 1968. They are 6 metres long and originally weighed nearly 3 tonnes. If electrifying a Rolls is difficult for traditionalists to cope with, they should be used to it. The most notable Phantom 5 was owned by John Lennon, which was painted with a psychedelic colour scheme. Elton John had a pink one and Liberace had one that was clearly over the top. Lunez will only make 30 of these vehicles and each will cost about 916,000 Australian dollars. April 2020 marked the end of the United Nations Decade of Action for Road Safety. The target for the decade was to reduce global road fatalities by 50% of the trending figure, which would result in below 900,000 deaths in a year. However, by the year 2016, the global road fatality toll had risen to 1.35 million, which is still the current rate per year. Road trauma varies very considerably with the income levels of countries. In low-income countries, the average rate is 27.5 deaths per 100,000 population, which is more than three times higher than high-income countries, with an average of 8.3 deaths per 100,000 people. The United Nations Road Safety Collaboration hopes that, by nations working together, low- and middle-income countries can develop while avoiding the costly mistakes made in the past by high-income countries. And that has been the news. Well, next week we will be talking about some regal cars, namely Rolls-Royces, particularly the old Phantom 5, which in some cases is going to be modernised, but not necessarily to the delight of some of the more traditional owners. But another vehicle that has had some presence in the royal family, perhaps not with luxury, but with out-and-about ruggedness. It was, in fact, the car that saved Rover after the Second World War. It was the Defender four-wheel drive that was given the name Land Rover, first given the name Land Rover. Now, they have had many versions, well, derivatives over the years of progressions, but they have now announced their latest model. Our good friend Rob Fraser, who is an expert in four-wheel drives, went along to the launch. G'day, Rob. David, how are you? Very well. Are we talking here about the sturdy plotter that it was in the past? No. No. <laughs> That's about as simple as I can make it. While it definitely has uh, a number of clues to the heritage in terms of its design, you know, and, and the iconic nature of that vehicle, it, it actually became a dinosaur. You know, it finished its production in 2016 and it was well and truly past its use by date then, sort of really only uh, the new vehicle, as I said, pays homage to the heritage, but it really is nothing like the old one and that's a good thing. 
Had you enjoyed driving the old ones? I couldn't drive them. I literally could not drive them because you couldn't move the steering wheel and there was not enough room between the top of the clutch and the steering wheel for my leg to change gears. You're a largish lad. I'm bigger than the average bear, yes. But one would think that the army would not be employing people below average height. Well, no, and again, it depended upon the variant. We have, we've got an old ute out on the farm that I can drive, not comfortably that I can drive. It was more about the wagon. Now, the last iteration of the wagon is where it really became an issue because as time went on, they filled up the centre console area with more and more bling, I guess, if you call bling on the Defender, and that cramped your room a little bit more. My colleague, Brian Smith, wants to find the Defender that uh, said that no one that understood the word ergonomics had ever been near the vehicle. And that's a pretty fair assumption, I'd say. We road tested one one time, and the greatest thing was that his kid played underneath it like it was a cubby house. (laughs) It did sit tall, and it was incredibly competent off-road. In terms of an off-road vehicle, without peer almost. They were were superb off-road. They had a very large role to play, of course, in the snowy mountain schemes. But enough of that. The new one, what makes it so different? Everything. It is a completely different vehicle. Think of yourself as a Land Rover Discovery and then add extra capability and robustness to it. And that's what we're talking about. It is stunning how good this vehicle is. In the sense of the comfort relative, of course, to what it was? No, no, no. We, we're talking first-rate SUV comfort now. Although it has you know, rubber floors and that type of stuff, it is exceptionally comfortable. And it's, it's built on the, the new sort of uh, architecture, they call it. We call it a chassis or a platform. But it's built on the new architecture that's shared with the Discovery and also the Range Rover Sport. But they actually take it one step further. Now, they make it stronger and definitely more capable than even those two vehicles are. And what that shows is, even on road when you're driving, the level of quietness, the level of response, and just that feeling of gliding along is is unbelievable. I was stunned at how good this vehicle is. Where does it fit into the market then? It ranges from just under $70,000 for the entry level through to about $130,000 for the top of the line. There's three engines, two diesels and one petrol, one eight-speed automatic gearbox. They all have the terrain response to four-wheel drive system. It spreads right across the market in terms of, you know, you can get into one of these fairly well-equipped for about $70,000 plus on-road costs, and you're talking a vehicle that really at that price range almost doesn't have a competitor in terms of its capability off-road and level of comfort off-road while you're doing it. Now, through to competing with the top-of-the-line discoveries. Why would I buy a discovery or buy it? What, what would be my decision-making process to pick the differences? Well, you know, that's a really good question and, and one that I actually put to the Land Rover people. And to be honest, one that they sort of said, well, you know, people will buy different vehicles for different reasons. I actually think they'll have a lot of cross-sales between people who would have bought a discovery and will now buy It's not quite as luxurious as inside as a Discovery is, but it's way more capable off-road than a Discovery is. 
So it is still very much for the series, but does it also look a bit different from the typical four-wheel drive that has become an SUV in its looks, at least? I know it's it's still got that rugged approach, you know, and and it very much harks back to the Defender of old. You know, there's a lot of design clues and a lot of style, and you look at it and go, "Yep, that's a Defender." There's no mistaking that. But it it is stylish. It is designed well. It looks good. Um, it's it's a thoroughly modern version of an iconic vehicle that will take the market by storm. I went to a car show, oh, it must be 10 years ago, and there we were talking to the CEO of Land Rover Jaguar, and they'd had the latest Defender then, and he, tongue-in-cheek, tongue certainly with a sense of humour about it, he noted that you could still see the rivets in the construction of the body. I presume we've gone beyond that now? Actually, it's funny you mention that because inside they still they make the homage to the rivets. <laughs> They're a lot more uh, stylish and a lot more functional, but yes, they do pay homage to it. People have really got to go and drive it because it, we did a, a series of four-wheel drive tracks that I've done before in other vehicles, and it's not so much that it will go places that other vehicles won't go, now, if you drove back-to-back with, say, a troop carrier or something like that, or even a Land Cruiser 200 series, the Defender will go where they go. That's not an issue. It's just how easily it does it that is the thing that really sits you back and go, wow. I, I, I mean, there were sections there where I was going up the you know, the track. Basically, you'd almost you know, put the jug on, have a cup of tea, you know, do a few emails while you're doing it. And I know well, if I was sitting in another vehicle... I would be bouncing, burbing, farting. I'd be carrying on. I'd be chewing up the track, you know, and I'd be fighting against the steering wheel. This thing just crawled up without even blinking. It then followed that up with a two-hour drive program through a number of, you know, rolling hills and open roads and stuff like that, and it drives better than a Discovery. It drives way better than a Land Cruiser because I'd literally jumped out of a Land Cruiser the day before. High praise indeed. Rob, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, David. And that's Rob Fraser talking about the new Land Rover Defender, once a very stodgy block and tackle sort of car, but now, as he says, has made some great steps forward. You're listening to Overdrive. And in feedback this week, we posted a couple of photos from Dean Oliver that he took at Amaru Park 1973, the Sun 7 Better Brakes Gold Medal Series. It showed a great variety of cars that were there, including the beefy Falcon 2-door, the more elegant Chrysler Charger, and the smaller Holden Tirana nipping at their heels. We put it on a couple of posts, including a historic car racing site in Australia, And so far we've received at least 130 likes. But we also received a message from a chap who is actually restoring one of those cars, Alan Grice's Tirana. It's early days yet, but we might try and catch up with him in the weeks ahead. Our other colleague Fred commented that the photo showed the quality of the pits at the time, which was a poorly tarmacked area with some canvas coverings to help keep the sun out. And in another situation, I popped up the coast to see some friends whom I'd known for many years. In fact, they knew me in my teenage years when I was driving my first car, a Morris Minor. 
They just moved, and as we arrived, Bob came out with a Wheels magazine. It was dated May 1953, and the front page story was a road test of the new Morris Minor with a bigger engine. I quote from the full report. The conception of a scaled-down car offering accommodation for four people with four doors and a road holding and handling which permits full use to be made of the not unsubstantial performance has been particularly well received in this country. That not unsubstantial performance included a naught to a hundred time of about 26 seconds from its 30 horsepower, that's 20 kilowatts in the new measure. While we were talking with Bob and Marg about the old days, she mentioned that she was in many ways an ideal girlfriend for Bob because she was so thin, which made it quite easy for her to get under the Austin A30 and help him replace the diff before they could go out. And we have mentioned the new Hilux that has been launched onto the market. Next week we will have a more detailed discussion But I note that on our Facebook page, Overdrive City, we've put a picture of the eight previous generation models of the car, which shows how it's developed over time. You're listening to Overdrive. In the light car segment of the Australian market, that's the second smallest, only compact, very little cars are smaller than that. The light car segment, a lot of cars have been selling very well on price, particularly the MG, and even the Suzuki Bellino is rocketing up the charts. The winner in that class for a while there had been the Toyota Yaris, but uh, they now have been waiting for a new model which has just been released onto the market. Alan Zervis and I uh, attended the virtual launch via the computer to see what it was like. G'day, Alan. How are you, David? I'm very well. The Yaris, it's a distinctive-looking car. I think it's very pretty. I like that look. I like the direction Toyota design has taken. They had, as you and I remember, a couple of years ago, was it? We went to a session with their design people who'd come over from California. No more boring cars was their motto. An interesting car. It's got three cylinders, but it's not turbo. It's not a little one-litre three-cylinder turbo engine, is it? Uh, that's the thing that I thought was very strange. It's, it's virtually the same capacity as the previous four-cylinder engine, but it doesn't have the, the, the turbo. I, I, I really don't understand the strategy behind doing that. Well, you know, uh, my feelings is that sometimes those little one-litre turbos had to work very hard, and as such, they tended to actually use more fuel than their laboratory-rated figure. So I think that the 1.5-litre, in a normal 2-litre four-cylinder engine, but only three cylinders is really trying to work a little easier. It does get very good fuel economy, including the hybrid model, which is, of course, new on the market. Yeah, the hybrid uh, replaces, well, virtually replaces anyway, the slow-selling Prius C, which was, uh, I could never see any point in buying that car, and in fact, I can't see any reason for Prius existing, period. Not anymore now. No, because uh, once upon a time, if you wanted to buy a hybrid, you had to buy a Prius. Now, virtually... Every single passenger car Toyota has, has a hybrid option. Uh, and this one gets down to about, uh, I think the lowest was 2.8 litres per 100 kilometres. 
It's combined as 3.3, but your point is right, because in the urban area, it's actually lower at 2.8. It's a stunning thing. The other thing is that you can get it with a manual and you can get it with a CVT without the hybrid. And in fact, the CVT is about 10% more efficient in fuel. It's around about 4.9 litres per hundred. That's pretty good. It is pretty good, and it also saves extra in CO2 emissions as well. Talking about features, it comes with some pretty good kit. It's uh, it's amazing. Well, I think it's pretty much the best equipped Toyota there is. And it's got a couple of extra things that we've not seen in Toyota before. And in fact, I haven't seen a passenger airbag between the two front passengers anywhere. I knew it was coming, but uh, I hadn't actually seen one in a production car stops head clashing if you're in an accident or body clashing which can be just one extra area where you can get damaged it also has things like adaptive cruise control standard across the range in this car that's amazing i mean even the new audi a4 and a5 are not standard adaptive cruise control all of the Germans are at it. They put all of the really good stuff into packs and then they charge you a bunch of money extra to have those things that a car for 20000 has standard. Mention the price. It actually starts at what? Uh, it's over $20,000 now, David. They don't have a small car under $20,000 and goes up to over $32,000. $22,130 is the entry level and it's a manual. So you're pitching yourself well above some of the big sellers in that segment. And that's where I was going with the comment before about uh, Corolla, is that the prices in every trim level is almost on par with the much bigger Corolla. It's an interesting strategy. Do you think it'll last? No. No, I think it's a brilliant car. I have had a look at one uh, inside and out. I haven't driven it yet, though. And I think it's pretty I love the design. The inside is nice. I definitely wouldn't call it premium, but it is, you know, gosh, that bottom one it's especially is probably 4000 5000 too expensive. It needs to be well under $20,000 if it's going to succeed. And they started off that launch by saying, we haven't taken this up market by the price before they told us what the price was. They are going to bring in some variants into the SUV segment. Will that make a difference? Well, I think they will probably sell. There's some small SUVs have done very well, but generally the car market itself has suffered badly and it's probably a really bad time to introduce a model. Certainly into the passenger car market, last month the very light SUVs were up nearly 19% on the same period last year. Now, that's a rebound after the pause period. The small SUV market was up 11%. That's the non-prestige versions, but the larger ones aren't doing as well compared to the same period last year. But they're still shopping on price, David. Buyers shop on price. It doesn't matter what the car makers tell you and me. The buyer at the end of the day is going to go and spend as little of their hard-earned money as possible. Let me just have a look. The one that is really booming, no, it's actually in the very light car. It's the Nissan Duke, which they've just put one out. In the small car SUV, some of the ones that are doing well is, in fact, the Suzuki Vitara, which, again, is being sold 
strongly on price. And of course, the the MG ZS, that's up 15%. Oh, and I tell you what, in the small car class, in percentage terms, the Haval H2 is up 196%. Alan, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. And that's Alan Zervis from Gay Car Boys. And we were talking initially there about the new Toyota Yaris. A lot of features, but it comes at a price. You're listening to Overdrive. And we're back again uh, to talk some, well, it's a bit quirky in one way, yet it's an issue that has really struck home in Sydney as well. And joining us to do this is, of course, our great transport planner, Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Now, tell us what's happening in Wellington. So, yes, turning to Wellington, New Zealand now, and many people would be aware of temporary sort of changes in traffic and and uh, the uh, temporary bicycle facilities and the like resulting from the pandemic. So cities that are, are trying to encourage or, or keep people moving by active modes, walking and cycling, and they've been sort of um, taking away space for cars and creating cycle lanes. In fact, in Sydney, most recently, um, George Street has been basically no more traffic in George Street where the light rail is. And, and I saw them there the other day putting in sort of protected cycle paths. Um, in Wellington, New Zealand, um, the city council uh, has put in some temporary cycleways, which uh, it's now revealed could be in place for years. And there's six of them, and they their intention was to provide more space to enable, enable physical distancing um, uh, and, and get people off peak into bikes and stuff. And they removed something like 400 car parking spaces and uh, a new cycleway that's been put in there would remove another 50 car parking spaces. And so what um, city, some city councillors and some um, shop owners are quite concerned, uh, it, well, I guess the lack of public consultation as they see it, but more that the fact that these temporary measures may be temporary for many years. They're concerned about it. Now, David, um, most cities you find people are, tend not to be um, parking cars outside shops as part of the, the way of basically supporting the economic life of the city. In general, most people in cities um, who are the, the, the uh, customers of many shops walk or get, get there by public transport. And you imagine very, very few people would drive a car into a city, uh, busy city centre, park outside it or expect to be able to park outside a shop and shop there. Uh, I wonder, David, whether this the retailers are more concerned about losing spaces that they themselves may have been parking in than their customers. That happens a lot where if an inspector goes around, the word gets passed around through the local shopping shops and shopping centres and um, comes out with the, the thing that, you know, then we better move them. And certainly there's a lot of research that suggests that very little activity comes to the shops from those parking spaces that are directly out the front. In Sydney, we've got the same problem. This issue's gone through, but most of the complaints are coming from urban areas of people that was in a city, and so the housing, as we talked about last week, no, not only didn't have a small garage, they had no garages at all. And so there are issues about how does my help turn up, you know, like a medical help and so on, and, and particularly for an aged population. It's often called, just putting in temporary stuff, tactical urbanism. Yes. 
which to my mind sounds a little bit like terrorism, but and I think some people might think it is. But the point about it is, instead of designing, arguing, and then spending a squillion dollars, you just put temporary stuff up and see how it goes. And New Zealand's done this a lot. It's been known for trying things, right? And and, and they do consult a lot in that country. Uh, I've worked there a lot and they consult a heck of a lot. And they consulted on these changes, many of them, these pop-up cycleways. And uh, in, in general, people are quite supportive of it. So if it works, uh, then you've, you've demonstrated it. You've got the evidence rather than, than perhaps trying to convince people of something that they have no experience of. Ah, an experience of it. What a lovely expression. Brian, you've summed it up well. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. And that's Brian Smith, transport planner extraordinaire, who's giving us some reflections on tactical urbanism, where we put in what appears to be temporary things, but gives everything a chance to perhaps refine it a bit, perhaps see if it works. But even if it doesn't, well, then let's take it out. We'll catch him up again next week. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Rob Fraser, Alan Zervis, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help in putting this program together. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au All previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. And on next week's program, we'll talk about electrifying Rolls Royces. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.